to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Start it. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team fucking here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Hello, Hotel Bar Sessions podcast listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Hotel Bar Sessions podcast. I am Lee Johnson, and I am joined, as usual, by my fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Charles Peterson and Dr. Rick Lee. We are also joined today by an amazing guest host, Dr. Charles McKinney, who we'll properly introduce later. But we're going to start off like we normally do and get everybody's drink orders and everybody's rants and raves for this week. I should announce that we have a new bartender this season. We had to finally say goodbye to Frangelica after season two. So today and for season three, we are going to be ordering from our new bartender, Romulus. Rami. Rami. (laughs) Hey, Rom. So welcome back, everybody. And Charles Peterson. What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? I'm going to make a little switch as a shout out to a mutual friend of of mine and Dr. McKinney's. So I'm going to have a nice trappist tail. I'm going to settle into it and I'm going to look for God in the bottom (laughs) of that pint. (laughs) I've been there, Charles. It takes more than one. I'm a searcher. I'm a searcher. (laughs) (laughs) What are you ranting and raving about this week? Well, my rant, let's call this rant Evil Dead Part 2. Colin Powell has passed away. I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but I do like to tell the truth. Wait, Charles, you need to do it in the official funeral truth teller format. That's right. This motherfucker. That's right. That's right. Colin Powell may have been a nice person, a good man, but this motherfucker, with his lies before the world, was responsible for the death of at least a million Iraqis. He helped to cover up the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. He had a hand in the invasion of Grenada, overthrowing the government of Maurice Bishop. So I'm sure he was a great granddad. I'm sure he was a great husband, a great father. But this motherfucker helped to create the fucked up modern world in which we live. So that's my rant. My rave is soccer on a nice fall afternoon. My two older sons, their high schools will be playing each other this afternoon in a head-to-head first round (laughs) of a soccer tournament. And I'm so excited about going out there and being completely neutral as to anything that happens on the field. (laughs) Charles just keeps shouting, go Peterson, go Peterson. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was trying to talk my wife into doing what Steph Curry's parents do, like when he and his brother play each other. (laughs) One parent roots for one son, the other parent roots for the other. But Meredith cannot bring herself to do that. So we're just going to be incredibly neutral at the game. So those are my rants. Those are my raves. That's my drink order. All right, Rick Lee, what about you? What are you drinking? What are you ranting and raving about this week? So my drink order, I've cleared it with Rami and he thinks he can make it, (laughs) is a Boulevardier, which is a Negroni, except instead of gin, it has bourbon. Um, Mm. So the weather's turning a little chilly. And so I'm going to have a Boulevardier. So do you think the bourbon switch keeps you a man of the people? Because you keep going with these... (laughs) 
these private school, these Swiss skiing adventure treats. And I'm just trying to, do you think the bourbon keeps you authentic and real? Is that, that's, that's, I'm just asking questions. It is so awesome to see how the sausage is made. <laughs> I was going to say that. Right. Bro, our guest is already buttoned in. Right, you get to peek behind the curtain. I'm you get to just, peek behind I the just, curtain. I, I just want to peek in on a weekly basis. It's the bourbon that makes it cool, Charles. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm fine. So what's your rant and rave there, Rick? This is the antidote to Charles' rant. I'm raving, uh, sadly, about Timuel Black. <laughs> who passed away recently as we're recording this, a huge giant in the city of Chicago, a huge giant in the civil rights movement. One of the things, and we'll leave a link in the show notes, one of the things that really struck me about something he said in his 2019 memoir was that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. needed elders like him to help guide him. And then he follows that by saying, and I needed his leadership. And I just thought that was so generous. He mentored Harold Washington, one of the greatest mayors we've had. He mentored Barack Obama. Mm, okay. So just a giant. <laughs> just a giant in the city and in the civil rights movement. But I wanted to rave about him and his life. I'm ranting about the summer Rick. Who went the whole summer thinking he has time to kill and it doesn't matter and the future will never come. And now the autumn Rick is reaping that fucking whirlwind. whirlwind. I feel that. I so feel that. So I am ranting about the stupid, lazy summer Rick. So I so you, feel that, Rick. Are you like a folkloric animal who didn't put his nuts away over the springtime and now in the winter you just completely fucked and you turn to cannibalism and you're eating your wife <laughs> and children? Whoa. Whoa, that escalated quickly. <laughs> that did. That did. <laughs> All right, you guys. So I am going to give my drink order and quick rants and raves so that we can also get uh, a drink order and rants and raves from our special guests. But my drink order today is going to be my usual, and this is a test for our new bartender, Romulus. Rami, I want a Fireball and Diet Coke, and I want it without any lip, without any commentary. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we'll see if he, can do, if he can manage that. So my rave this week is weird, but it's actually online discussion forums. <laughs> I know that since we've invented online discussion forums, the students have been really terrible about participating in them, that they usually are just like, I totally agree with your point. What an excellent point. Or, you know, et cetera. But I do feel like one of the great things about COVID is that students have gotten better at online education. And I have to say that this semester, my students are on fire in their online discussion forums. And I'm really considering taking away even the last paper assignment and just putting up another discussion forum because the work is so good there. My rant for today is Kel Surprise, reply all. Oh my God. Oh my God. 
Like if 18 year olds can learn how to have nuanced and complex discussions on a discussion forum, why can't grown ass adults learn not to reply all when (laughs) everyone doesn't need to hear their replies? This is the bane of my existence. I do not understand why my colleagues and adults in general can't figure out that uh, like you should never repress reply all. Honestly, just don't do it. All right. So with that, I want to introduce our very special guest for today. I think we're all super excited to have him here. We are joined by Dr. Charles McKinney. He is the Neville Frierson Bryan Chair of Africana Studies and Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College, which is right here in Memphis, Tennessee. He is the author of Greater Freedom, the Evolution of the Civil Rights Struggle in Wilson, North Carolina, published in 2010, and the co-editor with Aram Gatsuzian of An Unseen Light, Black Struggles for Freedom in Memphis, Tennessee, Civil Rights and the Struggle for Black Equality in the 20th Century. I also want to say that Chuck is a former colleague of mine. He is one of my IRL heroes, and I'm so glad to have you here, Chuck. So welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions, and what are you drinking? Well, first off, I just got to say that when I got the invite to get on this particular podcast, I was immediately excited and nervous, very giddy <laughs> and very intimidated by the presence of you three August intellectuals. And so, uh, so that's the so that's the that's the first thing, right? That's the first thing. So, what am I drinking? With a hat tip to my dear friends from Wisconsin. Evie Perry and Charles Hughes, who have introduced me to this drink. I'm going to hit Rami up for a Wisconsin Old Fashioned. Um, All right, you got to explain. Yes, what is that? yes. And so, um, so the Old Fashioned traditionally is a slice of orange, some bitters and sugar. And generally, the base of this drink is brandy. But the good people in Wisconsin have said, oh, hell no to the brandy and have replaced the brandy with some straight up whiskey. And so my introduction to the old fashioned was the Wisconsin old fashioned. So hat tip to Charles Hughes and, and Evie Perry to introducing me to the Wisconsin old fashioned. So that's my drink order, the Wisconsin old fashioned. I do, do want to say that that is much better than what I thought you were going to say, which was like it cheese. included like, anchovies. And cheese. Or yeah. Yeah, right. cheese and anchovies. <laughs> <laughs> And a, fish, and, a, and, a, and a piece skills. of sausage. I will be sure to. Re- <laughs> I will be sure to report your Wisconsin hate to my. <laughs> no, 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 To my to my friends from the great state from Chuck, that great I, cheese I'm a state of Chicago, and so they're all cheeseheads to me. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm co-signing on that one. All right, Chuck. What are you ranting and raving about this? All week? right. So I have two quick rants. The first one is this conversation about Dave Chappelle and how narrow our conception of genius has become. There's just all kinds of things to rant about with this Chappelle thing. Apparently, it just doesn't take that much to become a genius these days. <laughs> so, so that's the first part of that particular rant. The second part, really quickly, is the way the conversation has been shaped as if censorship and omission constitute the ground upon which all discourse is exchanged. So the idea that there's some sudden eruption of censorship cancel culture. I mean, just such a bullshitty line of thinking there. It's just, I can go on for this. So that's the first rant. The second really quick rant is Summer of Soul, the new movie that just recently was released on Hulu with all of these titans of black music in 1969. This narrative about this concert being lost. 
that kind of sticks in my craw a little bit, right? So my emerging <laughs> my emerging rant is after somebody recorded literally the greatest musicians in the United States for a summer concert, some group of people saw that footage and said, nah, we're good, right? We're not going to do anything with this footage of Sly and the Family Stone, the staple singers, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder. Yeah, 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 yeah. No thanks. We're good. So this wasn't <laughs> lost. It was discarded. It was disregarded. So those are my twin rants. My rave right now in this moment is the resilience of my students and the resilience of students all across the country who are navigating their educations in this moment. Here at Rhodes, we've been buffeted by a host of, of challenges and tragedies. And to see the ways in which my students are responding to that, that's my rave, is my hat's off to my students here at Rhodes College in my three courses, but students across the college in general and students across the planet, really, quite frankly, just in terms of how they've been able to navigate this moment. So that's my rave. Nice, nice. Well, we are super excited to have you here today. And the topic for today's episode, we've titled Who's History? We are recording this on the heels of a very recent and very heated debate in this country about whether or not to include critical race theory in high school and elementary education. Just FYI, everyone, there is no critical race theory in high school and <laughs> elementary education. But there's a lot of debate about this. And it's also important to remember that that debate, that deeply divided political debate is coming on the heels of just a few years ago when President Trump threatened to defund California schools that were teaching the 1619 Project. But one of the things that we want to think about is how this is both a extremely contemporary and an age-old American debate. So yes, we've been having these debates in the last 10 years, but all of these took place in the aftermath of the Civil War in 1917, in 1948, and many other times besides. So our topic today is going to be whose history? As I'm starting my school year, I'm teaching the Intro to Africana Studies course. And one of the first texts that I read with my students is Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro. And I start with Woodson in a discussion of Africana or African-American or black studies because Woodson, though not the first, probably writes some of the most iconic insights into the relationship between power and knowledge and race that we come across. There's a reason why, really a century later, his is a voice that is still paid heed to. Jarvis Givens has just written a brilliant book called Fugitive Pedagogy, which I think people should check out. So I thought this was perfect to bring Chuck into this conversation, thinking about this whole thing about, you know, critical race theory, but really the erasure of certain types of knowledges and insights and ways of understanding how we as a society, how we as a civilization have arrived at this point and what populations or what narratives and what histories take a hit. What are some of the uses that history has outside of a simple academic or intellectual exercise? And how do we go into the future in this seemingly constant battle for what will be determined to be the truth, the explanatory truth of our society? So, Chuck, Chuck the Elder, I'm throwing it all on your plate, man. What do you got? What do you think? I'm sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Welcome oh, to our it world. Was just Chuck. something about it was something about history. I don't, I don't know. Oh shit! So, I've muted. So that's a huge introduction, right? And for me, thinking about Carter G. Woodson, thinking about the contemporary moment, critical race theory, it all boils down to. And Woodson's right about this, right? You know, basically what Carter G. Woodson's telling us at the beginning of the 20th century is that education and ignorance, these are all parts of a political project. He is foreshadowing the work of James Baldwin and others who are saying, look, you know what, the first thing we have to do here is dispense with white innocence, is dispense with this idea that slavery just popped up and oops, sorry, that the systematic exclusion of black people from educational opportunities was just some sort of unfortunate byproduct of American democracy, right? You know, the oops narrative of American history. So what Woodson is trying to tell us, and what he does tell us in some really explicit ways, is that this is a political project. This is a system working as it's intended to work. And so any efforts to upend this system, to contradict or confound this system, that's an insurgent moment. That's a revolutionary moment to try to bring black folks into the mainstream of American life vis-a-vis education. You know, he's writing this at a time where the consensus in the American South is education wrecks a perfectly good field hand. That's the sentiment, right? Education cuts our profits, say white folks in the American South and outside of the American South. Education is literally bad for business. And anything that's bad for business is probably, so goes the thinking, is probably also bad for democracy. It's bad for the society at large. It's bad so, for America. It's bad for America, right? With a U R, <laughs> with a with a with a with a U R and a hard C, <laughs> right? It's just it's with U R and three K. Yeah, yeah, America, right? You know, so he's so he's also foreshadowing Ice Cube. <laughs> right? So in this moment, the critical race theory moment, right? Once again, the the anxiety is rising up because whenever we try to expand a body of knowledge that reveals white power, that reveals the nature of white supremacy, we see the expansion of this anxiety. And the anxiety in this particular moment can take on just truly and genuinely ridiculous forms. And again, we've seen these forms before, right? You know, when textbook writers and historians are trying to give an accurate depiction of slavery, an accurate depiction of Jim Crow and textbooks being used in the American South in the 1960s and 1970s, vociferous pushback. What do you mean coercive labor? No, this is a mutually agreed upon decision. Isn't this a, you know, isn't this a a contentious narrative? Uh, no. (laughs) No, it's not. No, it's not. You know, no, white man. No. So this is another moment where racial anxieties are running high and there's a piece of political machine that we can use to exploit and expand these anxieties. You know, critical race theory is created by a bunch of legal scholars in law schools. This is where it's generated. So I'm going to step out on a limb here, you know, school board people and concerned parents. I'm going to step out on a limb here and say that your third grader (laughs) is probably not being exposed to this legal theory. (laughs) In between cursive, recess, and art, they're probably not getting the finer points of critical race theory. But um, I thought Derek before. Bell wrote children's books. He didn't? <laughs> right. You know, Dr. Seuss, Derek Bell. <laughs> right. Oh, the you clients know. you will sue. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Third grade dodgeball game, perfect opportunity to teach critical race theory. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Boys and girls, do you ever notice what color the ball is that we use? (laughs) Did you ever think about the 14th Amendment when you're kicking the ball? Right, You know know what dodgeball makes me think about? White supremacy. (laughs) And equal protection. Yeah. I kind of want to 
to ask a meta question. I know this is going to come as a shock to you. And this is following on your opening claim that history is a political project. Because I think that on the one hand, that claim is exactly at the heart of the worry that conservatives in this country have about expanding the historical canon. So I guess my question is, and this is so meta, but like, what role does truth have in historical education for you? Because on the one hand, we could say history is always going to be an edit. It's always going to include a, a certain kind of centering of a certain kind of narrative that serves a certain kind of political end. And I think this is at the heart of the argument of both sides of the current debate in America, which is that people quite simply disagree about what the political project of teaching history ought to be. I think that what, what we often hear from the left is that, but the history that you're teaching is actually false. It's actually untrue. Whereas what we hear from the right is that the history you're teaching is true or includes true events, events that actually happened, but is so politically motivated that the valence of that historical education becomes untrue in some way. So I suppose like this, my, my question is really like, how do you view historical education that like the, the, the practice of historical education in, in relation to true events, or I mean, true events is a weird thing to say, but like truth. No, that's not actually true events is a great place. To, that, that's a great phrase to, to, to use in this. Okay. Let me give you an example, right? So um, caught up in this critical race theory debacle is a children's book written by Ruby Bridges. Now, Ruby Bridges is the little black girl who integrates all by herself an elementary school in New Orleans in 1960. White folks in New Orleans are not fond of this moment. And in the book, she talks about going to school and being faced by an angry white mob, which is true. We have the pictures. We've got the evidence. This is what actually happened. All of the parents in this particular elementary school withdrew their children. Ruby Bridges, along with her family, received death threats. So she couldn't eat food in the cafeteria because people said they were going to poison the food. So the nine-year-old got death threats. I don't think she's nine. I think she's younger than that. I think she's like six. So this is what happened. Now, some school board somewhere said that this book is a problem because it doesn't show both sides of the issue. And so from their perspective, they're like, yeah, 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 these things might be true, but the way in which this conversation is framed is problematic. So therefore, maybe we shouldn't use this book. Maybe this book should not be read by our students. So the claim here is that the problem with Ruby's account of her story is that the story does not arrive at some sort of resolution. The story is not sufficiently Hollywoodized and cinematic enough so that there is a counterbalance between angry white mobs and... I don't know, some large assemblage of happy white people that assembled at some point in 1960. This is not how true events happen. Yeah. But what we do know is when Ruby Bridges went to school on the first day, she was confronted by angry white yeah, mobs, yeah. right? That's factual. That's what happened. And so what the argument here is, is yes, but since we haven't found anything to counter that moment, literally the both sides arguments since she's not pulling from some other experiences somewhere else, 
because that would not be her experience since she hasn't borrowed somebody else's experience and say, hey, but I'm sure at some point in time, at some later date, right, you know, black people trying to integrate elementary schools were met with cheers and applause, right? That's not what happened to her. Well, I think if you could rewrite the book and Kevin Costner is the principal of the school. <laughs> and, and solves the her, problem. And solves the problem. He meets her at the door and then right. guides her in in scene. And that's what happens. No, I think it's beyond this idea that the right says, okay, we accept that these things happen, but let's frame it a different way. Or it doesn't come to the resolution that we like, which is, but this is still a narrative about good white people. I think we're at a point now where they don't want that history, they're denying its existence, period. This isn't a question of reframing. This is a question of complete and total erasure. And if you look at what's taking place in the Texas public school system, where there's no mention of slavery as a part of the historical conditions of the rise of the state and its populations, if you look at the banning of any critique of capitalism. So I think we're beyond, you know, let's open this up and let's both cider it. Because I think there was actually recently a recording of a state education official who said, well, if you're going to teach a book about the Holocaust, let's get another side of that. No, that's, a, that's an actual law. Yeah, that's Texas yeah, too. That's a new law. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a new law. But I think it's beyond that. We don't want this addressed at all. We want this completely suppressed and denied that this ever happened. I think that's where we are. And that's the wolf in the sheep's clothing, right? I mean, that's yeah. so the critical race theory is the Trojan horse by right. which we can then launch larger attacks that are directly aimed at that, right? So no mention of slavery. Also, the increasing mention of, of enslaved people as immigrants, mm -hmm. right? You know, where are you from? My people immigrated from Italy. My people immigrated from France, Im immigrated from the West Coast of Africa in the, in the 18th century, right? I'm a day worker from Lagos. You know, to quote, the, to quote those American <laughs> philosophers from Sesame Street, one of these things was not is like not the like other. the other. <laughs> Can you right, tell which right. one was doing their own thing before my song is done? <laughs> what Charles was just saying gets back to, I think, a question Lee asked that I would frame in a slightly different way. I would reframe the issue of truth around what counts as objectivity. And if, as a white person your history makes me feel bad, that can't be objective because I have a feeling now and feelings are subjective. And so there must be something non-objective with your history. And by the way, that's your problem, not my problem. So why don't you go back and fix it for me? <laughs> because I don't like to have problems. We just passed a really ridiculous critical race theory bill here as, as well, right? And that's pretty much the premise of the bill, right? Anything that makes white people feel bad, probably shouldn't be taught in public schools. And also, if it's taught and it makes white folks feel bad, then, you know, we might actually fine you for the teaching of this. Because if it makes us feel bad, then there's got to be a problem with it. And this gets back to my original point, right, is, you know, the project that Woodson and others are talking about in the early part of the 20th century, Du Bois and Black Reconstruction, that the anxiety levels are always going to be driven up when we start talking about and start revealing the bottomless nature of white power and white supremacy and the ways in which it's playing out in real time and the ways in which it hinges on and is an essential component, essential ingredient to all of the systems and structures that we say we hold dear. So if we keep down this path, it's going to be problematic just like actually teaching basic tenets of history, right? How exactly should you teach David Walker's appeal? How exactly should you teach Nat Turner? Or Frederick Douglass? How exactly should you teach large swaths of black people who aren't engaged in anything revolutionary except 
the idea that they should be included in the American project. That's the revolutionary part, and that's also the deeply problematic part for a whole bunch of these folks. So when I teach Frederick Douglass, I'm like, look, this dude's a nationalist. This dude loves the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And he also had to run away to Maine to, to acquire his freedom. So those two things exist at the same time. So it's getting hectic out here, right? It's getting hectic out here in these streets in terms of trying to lay bare these foundational contradictions in our heritage. And it's getting harder out here for public school teachers to navigate these waters in ways that I think all of us would say are really productive in terms of teaching our students to live in and through, as Du Bois used to say, live in and through paradox, to be able to navigate contradiction and things of that nature, right? This is what we need to be doing as opposed to lessons. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact, all of us, Just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So, Chuck, what you just said makes me think that my framing the the question in terms of objectivity maybe didn't go far enough. You're talking about what school teachers are facing and so on an actual confrontation, which, because it's in the form of political action, means individuals are meeting individuals in the street. But the struggle is not over a problem of this dude or that dude, but the struggle is a structural one. And yet the legislatures who are saying, you can't teach anything that makes me feel bad, are taking it not as a structural problem, but as a problem of individuals and individual agents. How do you bring together the need for action and rewriting history and and rethinking history and writing new histories against this larger structural problem, i.e. white supremacy? Well, one starting point potentially is to take our own history seriously. Let's play in the the playground that American exceptionalists love to play in, the Revolutionary War, World War II, World War I, right? And glean from these spaces the understanding that the colonists, for instance, aren't trying to break away from Great Britain because they fucking feel bad. They're trying to break away from Great Britain because of structural challenges that they believe can only be overcome by creating a separate nation. The stuff that Mike Pence and Donald Trump and folks on the right love to talk about, the stuff of American exceptionalism, when you break that open, all of the elements and dynamics that other people are trying to access are right there. And so it's a little bit of intellectual or theoretical or historical jujitsu. I'm not saying anything all that radical, although nowadays we'd all be branded as this rabid left-wing radicals. People who were bought and sold in South Carolina in 1845, they want to be free. Full stop. 
And they're not ambivalent about that. They want to be free. And they believe the words, give me liberty or give me death. One of the things I'm asking my students all the time is what happens when we take those words out of Patrick Henry's mouth Mm -hmm. and put those words in the mouth of an enslaved black woman living in South Carolina? How does that change the nature and the tenor of the words? You know, white guys in wigs tossing tea off of boats can say, give me liberty or give me death. And everyone's like, yay. What happens when she says it? What happens when Jonah, who's just been sold from Virginia to Mississippi for $750 in 1836, what happens when he says it? What happens when he says, look, I believe you in terms of self-evident truths? Nat Turner and his crew, when they're being executed, they're like, look, we're just doing what George Washington would have done. That's so true. And they literally say that. They're like, look, you know, give me liberty or give me death. I believe the words that you scripted. It's a radical notion for black people thinking that they should be free. That's a deeply radical notion. And it's radical because of the logic and the calculus of white supremacy. But on another level, isn't this the thing that we all say that we appreciate and love about the United States of America? So how are these ideas and issues complicated when non-white people show up and say, hey, I believe the words that you and your folks scripted. I believe those words. I think these things are self-evident and I'm prepared to do whatever I need to do in order to be included in these words. So we've got the tools. One of the things that we don't have in the moment is political will to make these arguments in all sorts of ways. And that's about the bottomless and foundational cowardice of lots and lots of political actors in the middle and left. And that's just like a whole other podcast. But we've got the tools with which to counter this moment. We just have to use the tools. I want to follow up on that point you just made, that we've got the tools, because I'm often reminded of the account that Franz Fanon gives in Black Skin, White Masks. And obviously, Fanon is speaking from the lived experience of a colonized West Indian. One of the things that I always find really interesting about his account, even when he goes through these like really particular stories about For example, watching Tarzan movies and saying like, look, everybody in the class identifies with Tarzan. And this is a weird story for those of us who don't identify with Tarzan. But one of the things that I really love about the account that Franz Fanon gives is he talks about white supremacy. He doesn't use the term white supremacy, but cultural racism as involving the participation of what he calls duped blacks and duped and duping whites. So there is this sense in which he he allows for the possibility that whites are also duped by the dominant narrative that is being fed to everyone, and especially in this context, in a French universalist educational system. What I like about what you're saying is that nobody's duped anymore. Like, whites are not duped anymore. Like, we've all got the tools. Every white person in America has already the tools to understand the structural conditions that form and perpetuate white supremacy. So this idea that, like, oh, all these white people are just confused about the lost cause or whatever keeps getting repeated hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact, that's just not an excuse anymore. So it has to be the case that perpetuating these historical lies, and maybe you wouldn't want to call them historical lies, but I suspect that you would, Perpetuating these historical lies is itself both a political and a historical project. Would you agree? Uh, hell yeah. 
and it pays very <laughs> it, it pays very particular types of benefits, right? White supremacy is really, really profitable. Um, it's a hell of a drug. It's a hell of a drug, right? <laughs> There's always a political payoff for white supremacy. And we saw that payoff really m- materialize for the Democratic Party in the years after the 1960s, as they're trying to figure out how to decenter their allegiance with the civil rights movement, their allegiance to black folks who are right about all manner of social issues, but they're black. So we can't really talk about and acknowledge the fact that black folk who are advocating that Fannie Lou Hamer was right, that yes, we need access. To, yes, we need universal health care. Yes, we need a guaranteed I- I- income. Yes, we need to figure out a way to get people housed. You know, all of these things that had been associated with just lazy black people wanting things. They're actually things that everybody wants, which was always the argument. The argument was never, hey, we just want these things for black people. The argument was in the movement, which didn't get heard in so many white spaces all all across the country. The argument was we want these things for everybody. And so that message gets corroded, gets corrupted. This forgetting mixed with political calculation superimposed by white supremacy leads us to this moment of the Democrats saying, look, how do we advance particular sorts of issues without centering the people who are responsible for showing us why these issues are so important? The argument that a whole bunch of people should be making all over the place is, look, your your investment in white supremacy, your investment in these policies, these ideas, these practices are literally bad for every single person in your house. They're literally killing you. We got There's this new book out, Dying of Whiteness, right? So we've got so few people who have the courage in the political arena to make that argument, particularly in a time when there's so much hay to be made by making the exact opposite argument, right? There's so much hay to be made. You know, you're going to get reelected to the school board because you hate critical race theory. You're going to get elected to the city council. You're going to get elected to mayor. You're going to get reelected to the Senate. You know, you're going to win some primaries you probably had no business winning when you run for president in 2024 or whatever. You know, somebody's going to run on critical race theory, (laughs) right? And they're going to win nine primaries off of the impact of critical race theory, not because they have an idea of how to fix the budget, not because they have an idea of America's place in the world, not because they have an idea about infrastructure or any of the things that make any sort of difference in the lives of actual real life people. They're going to win political office and and acquire political power because the Negroes are making us scared and they're trying to take over and our anxiety levels are high and we're going to do the thing that we always do in this moment, which is to blame these mythical, this, this composite image of the boogeyman. Yeah, and this is what Metzl, the author of Dying of Whiteness, calls right. calls backlash governance. And that idea might actually be getting at the question that I really want to ask you, Chuck, which is, if we take the doing of history, I don't know another way to say it, but the doing of history as always a political project, a politically infused project, what is then not history, right? Because earlier, I think that what you said was it's any history that involves untrue facts, untrue events, or the denial of true events. It seems like what you said earlier. But now we're talking about things that are not contestations about events that happened or didn't happen, but we're talking about the interpretation of events, how we fit true events into a story. And this is where I I really do think that going back to the Fanon quote about the duped and duping whites is that there are always ways to fit events that actually happened into a history that tells what I think you and I would both agree is a false history. 
and a history that tells what I think you and I would both agree is a true history. And I think like that's really what I'm asking you is as a historian, how do you make those determinations? Because it can't just be about like, does your history involve things that actually happened or not? But it also has to involve the interpretive narrative part of historical construction. Well, you know, I'm a simple historian. I'm a simple. You are 100 percent not <laughs> false, false, <laughs> false event. He just included a false event. <laughs> Flag on the play. Flag on the play. I'm going to, I'm going to insist that my school board not teach that in their class. <laughs> and this whole episode, I've been thinking it's only a matter of time before Charles says, well, I'm not a historian. <laughs> I just play one at Rhodes College. He really is a closet philosopher, but, you know. <laughs> why, thank you. Right, why, thank right. You. We don't mean it as a closet. I, I was like, yeah. why? Oh. I, was like, I was literally sitting here oh, like, damn. why would he consider that a closet? Yeah. Yeah, upon further review, fuck all of you. Yeah. <laughs> Fair play. Fair enough. Fair, Fair play. Enough. Fair enough. Right. I'm like, Rick, I barely know you, and that's just shit. (laughs) (laughs) So to your question, I keep going back to a couple of things. One is the Colin Kaepernick kneeling and the argument about how this is an unnecessary insertion of politics into a neutral space, which, can we just marinate on that for a second? (laughs) Right. The neutral space being everybody's standing for the national anthem. (laughs) They're like, hey, you know, Colin and the kneeling and the police brutality, that's just so political. So extra. Now now (laughs) shut up, because oh say can you see by the dawn's early light. What so proudly we hail, right? So again, back to my students, I was like, we really have to just sit with this contradiction that the assertion of police brutality is political but the singing of the national anthem is not. And that to me is really indicative of where we are and our dilemma, because in terms of the ways in which the political has been rendered invisible in so many places and spaces. And so when people who have agreed to the terms of what constitute the political enter onto the scene and engage in actions, again, that make white folk uncomfortable, then, you know, oh, well, this is political. This is partisan. This is really deeply problematic, right? So when black students say, hey, you know what? You took my money in this Woolworths over there when I bought some paper and a comb and some tape for my binder, but you won't take my money here at the lunch counter? I can't sit here and buy a cup of coffee? Well, I don't think that's right, and I don't think that's fair. And I'm going to use my constitutional right to protest to make the point that I believe that this is unfair and I believe that this is an un-American practice. And so, yes, that's a political act in response to a political formulation known as segregation. Okay, but what do you say to those students who say, these businesses are telling me that I have to wear a mask. I think this is a violation of my liberty. And I'm going to walk into this business not wearing a mask, and I'm going to expect that all upstanding, freedom-loving Americans also respect my liberty. I mean, obviously, that's a rhetorical question. That's right. A re- no, no. Yeah. But, but, but here's yeah. the answer yeah. to that, though, right? right? Really quickly. The students at the lunch counter who are doing this, they know that they're in violation of the law, and they have every expectation that they will go to jail because of their violation of the law. 
These freedom-loving patriots who believe that they should not be wearing masks also believe that they should not be held accountable for their actions. Yeah, yeah. You know, January 6th, I can storm into the Capitol and I'm going to have my cell phones out because I want everybody to see me storming the Capitol and be shocked and fucking amazed when the FBI <laughs> knock on my door. Kel Surprise. Kel Surprise. <laughs> what, what do you mean I'm under arrest? <laughs> I am baffled by this, right? The like horror. Your said, who, like, your, like your girl said who had gotten tear gas right that day. Right? She, was like, she was like, they're supposed to shoot at Black Lives Matter. Uh, they're not yeah. supposed to shoot at she me. She 100% said that too. <laughs> she 100% said that. Well, I think what we're getting to is something that always occupies my thoughts along these questions, and it actually taps into certainly an argument that Woodson was having, to take it back there, because Woodson did address the fact that not only are Negro students being miseducated, but also white students are being misled and misdirected in terms of the nature of history or the intellectual capability or, or hell, this biological composition of the Negro. Um, and it's also something that Du Bois, what you find, Chuck, is that Du Bois does a lot of work on this podcast. <laughs> he 100% does. Like, he's our fourth co-host. <laughs> he really he does a lot of work. This should be at the hotel bar with Webb. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> with Willie. Oh, my God. At the hotel bar with Why Willie. Why do we not name our new bartender W.E.B.? He would have been correcting your drink order. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. That's not what you want. That's not what you want. <laughs> no, no, no. How, plebe- how plebeian of you to want a beer? Oh, how how pedestrian. Let's all agree that WB was a little judgy. <laughs> oh, just so, more than a little. My drink orders are more in the line of what he would oh, have ordered. Oh, 100%. Y'all he would have only, oh, ser- he would have only served Rick Lee. Totally, yeah. yeah, yeah. He was like, Rick, you're my people. <laughs> yeah. So the, the question was earlier, can we really talk about a duped and a duping white public? And I think about the actual language of the anti-critical race theory laws in Tennessee, which are any information, any books, any text that make white people feel uncomfortable. And what I'm always thinking about, and I'm past the idea of false consciousness, and I think, Rick, we had this conversation last season with the episode about the the white working class, you know, what we're really dealing with is an, an amazing level of psychological damage and dependency that's driving all of this. We've gone beyond a white public that simply wants to hold on to power, that is more than willing to turn the United States into apartheid era South Africa, which is true. But we're also talking about a population or a consciousness that is so dependent upon the fiction of how it's been presented to itself by the dominant forces of this society that it would, I think there would be, and we're witnessing this actually, there would be a massive traumatic episode. There would be such a psychological break on the part of millions of white Americans that it would be incomprehensible to us. So I think that's really also what's undergirding this rewriting, this erasure, this rethinking, this suppression of particular truths. And we're not even talking about history per se. Like in my mind, history is not necessarily what happened. It's how people write or think or talk about what has happened. That's history. We're talking about the desperate emotional need to deny the existence of events that we know have occurred. Not necessarily what people say about them. Hey, these slaves enjoyed being enslaved by the patrons and the masters of their plantations. No, the, the enslaved actually hated it. And every night and every morning woke up with a burning desire to murder everybody with white skin on the plantation. No, no, no. Let's not even acknowledge that slavery existed. That is the center. That is the heart of the psychological construction and positioning of these people who are invested in this non-narrative, if you will. 
And, and that's what troubles me, because you can't fix that. We're talking about deprogramming at a national level. We can fix political jousting. We can have a clash of asserting particular constitutional rights. We can talk freedom of speech. We can make a moral claim as to whether or not you should talk honestly about the experience of Ruby Bridges, but psychological dependence upon a particular narrative. I don't know how that gets fixed. Hey listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar, but since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. Charles is at CF Peterson. That's at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR, and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. So the question of what this narrative, what this way of accepting, embracing, distorting, twisting, or I don't know, suppressing events in history, what it's doing for white consciousness is one question. But I'm more interested in, Chuck, your thoughts about what the other side of that question is. Like, what are these narratives? What should these narratives be doing for those who place themselves as the subjects of these narratives? What exactly does Woodson want history? or a certain type of black intellectual or academic production to do, right? What do the generations of historians within the African-American, the Africana tradition, what is it that they think that these histories should do? What do you think these histories should be doing and who should the histories be doing it for? Wow, that's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is a quote from Ida B. Wells. The way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth on them. And I think at the end of the day, there also has to be a recognition And again, I'm an historian of the African-American experience. And so everything black folk do is in some way contending with the systems and structures of the nation. Our bodies, black folks' bodies have been politicized in very, very particular sorts of ways, which has its roots and its moorings in slavery. And so by telling the truth about that relationship that black folk have to the larger nation and to the world in many instances, thinking diasporically, But for our purposes here in the United States, when we think about that relationship in a depoliticized way, to think about that relationship in a way that skips over or obscures the relationship to power, the relationship to the ways in which all of the things that we say we hold dear, freedom, liberty, justice, democracy, to skip over the ways in which those things were embedded and encoded, were shaped and framed from a white supremacist framing, does a disservice to everybody, not just the black folks. You know, ask poor and working class people how it's working out for them in the United States. Ask the millions upon millions of people who don't have access to affordable health care how this is working out for them. There's a building boom. We're building condominiums and apartment buildings hand over fist. In the midst of COVID, we're in the middle of a housing boom. 
but we're down 30,000 affordable housing units in the city of Memphis. Come to Memphis and ask the 30,000 people how this is working out for us, right? One of the reasons that we don't have a clear understanding of where we are as a nation is because of our habitual, our ritual, our deep, deep investment in the obscuring of the practice of power, our deep investment in rendering invisible the politics, the policies, and the ways in which the tentacles of white supremacy have ensnared and enmeshed literally every single one of our institutions. That's why we are where we are. And the more we come to grips with that reality, with that dynamic, the better off we as a society, we as a nation will be. And that's going to be hard work. That's counterintuitive and counterproductive work. You lose elections doing that work. You might lose jobs doing that work, but still, that's the brutal work that needs to take place in this moment if we are to truly move forward in, in a better way. I know we're coming up against the end of our time, and I have a kind of parting question for you, too. I'm sure Rick does as well, but you and I are like old colleagues. Like We taught together for many years, and I know that you know that one of the things that I hate the most is what I used to call lazy relativism, the kind of I-can-see-both-sides argument that students make. One of the things that I constantly struggle against in a classroom is that students have been raised in a culture that encourages them to think that riding the fence is a virtue. I know how to, I, I feel like I know how to handle this in my own classrooms, philosophy classrooms. But the title of this episode is Who's History? So I'm wondering, just as a purely pedagogical question, like how in a classroom do you approach this? When students say, you know, well, I can see both sides. Yeah, I, I go back to the history. Black people were saying we are fully human. There's a group of white people who are saying, no, you're not. And there's a group of folks in the middle who were like, well, you know, let's let's talk it out a little more. <laughs> right. And there's a group of people in the middle who were like, well, hey, hey, there's two extremes here. There's one extreme of black inhumanity. And there's he's talking extreme. about you, Joe Manchin. <laughs> yeah, right. And then there's another extreme of black humanity. <laughs> right. There's two groups of people. There's one group of people who think black people should be free and there should be no slavery. And there's a group of people who think that there should be slavery and that black people should be owned by other people. And then there's the folks in the middle who are like, well, you know, maybe we can figure out a way to move forward in this middle ground because I'm in the middle and therefore I'm compromising. Kiss my ass. No, you're not. But yeah, but like, but right? like, just to, so, just to put a, a, a pin on it, though, like in an actual classroom. When you're confronted with this kind of response from a student, again, like in the context of this podcast episode, which is titled Who's History? Do you feel like it's appropriate to say to that student, let me tell you whose history you're telling? You think you're being in the middle, but you're. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Um, yes, of course. Right. I mean, you know, again, the, whose history are you telling? And let's take it back. You know, we take it to the civil rights period, right? Should black people have access to the Constitution? Yes. <laughs> no, undecided, right? You know? And here's the last here's the last point I would make on this. Every other year I teach my civil rights history class. And every year a student, a white student from the South will say, we just spent a week talking about the movement as it played out in my hometown. Mm -hmm. And I haven't heard a single solitary word about any of that. Why? Right. 
To which I reply, go ask your mama. <laughs> go ask your mama <laughs> <Right>? whose history. <laughs> and, right. And, and, your, and your history teacher and your social studies teacher and right. everybody. And your school you know board in your, and your governor. And everybody yeah. and literally everybody you know in your town. Yeah. As to why you are from Greenwood, Mississippi, which is one of the cities that's anchoring the movement in Mississippi, why you can be from Greenwood and not know a single solitary thing about the movement that took place in your hometown. Yeah, I think this is what we all saw recently with Tulsa, only thanks to HBO. Right. So, <laughs> right. So that student who doesn't know anything about the movement that unfurled in Greenwood is diminished. You've been given a very specific version of this history that has literally erased the movement to get the Constitution enforced in your home state. Why don't you know about that? And are you ambivalent about the fact that you don't know about now this? that you know? Right. Can you now that you know, can you look back on that and say, well, you know, I didn't know about any of this. And ultimately, that's OK. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, <laughs> you know, ultimately, I will be the fully informed citizen that's going to go on and participate in strengthening American democracy. There's this big ass hole and there's this big ass gap in my knowledge about how people in my hometown were trying to live out their own citizenship that I don't know about. But that's OK. You know, and I ask my students very, very clearly, folks who want to be integrated into the mainstream of American life and folks who don't want that to happen, which side would you choose in this? You know, if there is a both sides argument to be made, so which side are you choosing? We can have that debate about what does it look like to occupy a middle in these sorts of conversations? What does it look like to say, mm, you know, slavery, freedom, I'm in the middle, right? Mm, integration, the recognition of the citizenship of black people, not recognizing the citizenship of black people, eh, you know, where's the middle ground? And the middle ground has been staked out. The middle ground is always being staked out in each and every one of these instances. Let's critique the middle ground. Let's look at the middle ground and see what sorts of things the middle ground is doing or not doing for both the people who want to maintain the status quo and for the folks who are trying to change the status quo. What is the middle ground doing in those instances? This is where I think a point Charles made earlier comes back in a really sharp way. So, Charles, if I understood you correctly, you were talking about how for white folk, there is a precipice of an incredible psychological break that is just under awareness at the moment. And that, in a way... To be happy with the middle ground is to say, I don't want to go over that precipice. But it's also to not understand that if you look down over the precipice, you see a bunch of people we pushed off that thing a long time ago who are living on the other side of that every single day. And so like the psychological break that the structure of white supremacy is attempting to avoid at the same time includes the intense psychological pressure that African-Americans have been and continue to suffer under the structures of white supremacy. And then to go back to, Chuck, your earlier point about Kaepernick, and therefore all white spaces don't have to be marked as white, but they have to be kept neutral. This is not white space. This is not black space. This is just space. Well, let me tell you, if it's just space, then it's white space. If it's neutral, then it's a white event. It's a white context. Yeah, what does it mean for us? What sort of psychic chaos or damage gets unleashed 
if we as a nation sit with the reality of enslavement and if we as a nation sit with the reality of settler colonialism. What would it mean for us to truly contend with those dynamics? What does that reckoning look like? Are we going to have a national conversation about what we've done to indigenous people? Oh, well, well, shit. Does that mean that we're going to have to start having conversations about land and resources and about reparation of some sort? And we saw what happened with 1619. This wasn't the reparations project, right? This wasn't the give black people money project. This was simply, hey, you know what? What happens when we center 1619 in our national conversation about who we are as a nation? And seven stories in the New York Times. And seven stories in the New York Times, right? right. And who reads the New York Times anyway? <laughs> <laughs> right? And pretty soon, you know, cats and dogs living together, total chaos. <laughs> well, the question becomes, and it's certainly a philosophical question that I, I have been exposed to the answer, but, you know, what happens when the solipsism of whiteness breaks? What happens when your reality no longer reflects you discursively, politically, economically, socially, culturally, psychologically, what happens then? Who do you become when the mirror cracks? And maybe the the panic is the fear of actually having to take responsibility for the lies that the mirror has been telling you, that the solipsism has held you within. And also the conclusion that has been drawn for literally 400 years is the affirmation of these things just will invariably lead to chaos, right? There's no good that can come of this. There's no good that can come of recognizing the enormity of, of slavery. There's no good that can come of recognizing the enormity of removal, right? There's nothing good that can come of that, that in, invariably leads to chaos, that invariably leads to disunity, to all manner of just bad shit. If we go down this road, as opposed to thinking about all of the restorative and generative and positive outcomes that can come with an honest reckoning of our history. If I could just in summary, because we are drawing to a close here, just say that what I think that Chuck has really made clear in this episode is that if we ask the question whose history is being taught, I think we all have to agree it's still primarily white people's history. If we ask whose history should be taught, I think that Chuck would say our history should be taught. But we also recognize that because it's a particular history, it's always going to leave out other histories, right? I think what I really love about this conversation is that maybe now at the end of it, I realize that the question whose history is not really the right question. Because what Chuck has just said is that history is not a matter of ownership of a narrative, Like what history ought to be is a reckoning and everyone is subject to that reckoning. So it has to always be this space of constantly questioning how it is that one is situated in a particular narrative and how one attempts to discover the margins and blind spots and erasures of the narrative in which one is situated. Chuck, first of all, thank you from all of us. You've been an absolute fantastic guest. We were all super excited about you being here and you have absolutely surpassed all of our expectations. But I want to give you the last word before we close up. On January 6th of this year, a group of primarily white folks stormed the Capitol building in the United States. 
effectively stopping the workings of the government of the United States for several hours. It stopped the presidential election process in its tracks. Lawmakers, legislators barricaded themselves in the central chamber. The Capitol Police, such as they were, were deployed. National Guard troops were not deployed. We're still trying to figure out what that looked like. This was the most significant attack on the Capitol since the War of 1812, when the British stormed the Capitol and burned it to the ground. So that's on January 6th. As far as I could tell, there's not a single mumbling word uttered by anybody, pundit, politician, invoking nonviolence, invoking Martin Luther King, whose birthday will be celebrated a mere nine days after this event. Nine days later, the nation's going to stop to celebrate the nonviolent philosophy and ideology of Martin Luther King Jr. in the wake of one of the most violent moments ever foisted upon the capital of the United States. So, you know, my closing thought is, how was that possible? How was that possible? I was on a podcast a couple of days after January 6th with this Catholic official. I, I said that to him and he was like, you know, yeah, it never occurred to me to access the language of nonviolence in the midst of watching this violence. And it didn't occur, as far as I can tell, looking over the footage, right, it didn't occur to anybody else either. It didn't occur to anybody in any of the television shows that I watched. And I've even Googled it. So all of that to say, when we close ourselves off from the history that we say we cherish, when we close ourselves off from the narratives that we say we value, this is what we can wind up with. We can wind up with January 6th happening and then engage in a national conversation that is bereft of this other type of narrative, this other type of framing in terms of the way in which we could see this moment. I mean, just gone, completely, completely gone. And the thing that really, I'll say this and then I'll shut up. The thing that gets me is the proximity. This didn't happen in October. This didn't happen in August. This didn't happen, you know, over Christmas break. This happened nine days before. That same building and all of the people who cover that building will stop and pause and reflect on this other way of being in the world. And so I'm haunted by that moment and by that reality. And that reminds me of why history matters and of why we have to aspire to be like Woodson. We have to aspire to be like Du Bois. We have to aspire to be like Ida B. Wells and shine the light of truth when we do this work. Romulus has had his <laughs> fill of the history lesson. Oh, Romulus. Oh, come on, Romulus. Bear with us. It's going to be a long season, homie. <laughs> I want to thank Dr. Charles McKinney, my esteemed colleague, my good friend, my old buddy, mentor, and co-conspirator in a few capers. It's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you for helping us to explore the question of whose history. I think if we don't have a definitive answer, we are damn close to it. I want to say thank you also to Lee M. Johnson, doing a do. I want to say thank you to Rick Lee. And we are going to sign off and we'll catch you next time down at Hotel Bar Sessions, where the real philosophy takes place. And also thank you, Rami. Thank you, Rami. Thanks, Rami. <laughs> Bye, Chuck. Thanks, y'all, so much. Really Peace. appreciate it. Y'all take care. <laughs>